Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. We are in Season 9 of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is Advancements in Congenital Heart Disease, and our show today is A Nurse's Perspective, Changes in Care Over the Last 30 Years, Part 1. Our guest today is Dina Barber. Dina Barber graduated from Kent State University with a bachelor's degree in nursing in 1983. For the last 34 years, she has worked in Akron, Ohio as a nurse. The last 30 years at Akron Children's Hospital. For the last 14 years, Dina has been a nursing subject matter expert in adult congenital heart disease, including the natural course of congenital heart disease in adults and the challenges this unique population of survivors face. Because of the many advancements in the care for those with congenital heart disease, there are now more adults alive with CHD than children. Many of you remember Dina from last season when she was on the episode entitled The Natural Course of Congenital Heart Disease. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dina. Oh, thank you, Anna. I'm thrilled to be back, and I had such a great experience, a lot of nice comments from your listeners that I'm thrilled to be back again. Oh, well, we just loved having you on the program, and I can't wait to talk about all of the different topics we're going to cover today. The 30 minutes is going to fly, so hang tight, listeners. We have a lot of different topics to cover. Dina, you've been a nurse for 34 years, and you've had a chance to watch the field of pediatric cardiology grow and change. Today, we're going to address some of the biggest changes we've seen unfold in caring for patients with congenital heart defects. Let's start by talking about care for arrhythmias. How were people generally treated for arrhythmias 30 years ago compared to today? I think probably the biggest change has been the increase in knowledge about the natural course of each particular defect and disease process. When we were caring for patients even 15 years ago, we didn't always have a large cohort of older patients in particular to know what to expect. Oh, does this patient develop a bradyarrhythmia? Does this patient develop a fast heart rate? Are they atrial in nature? Are they ventricular in nature? So now that we have that knowledge and we're being able to share that across the globe, we now know what to watch for. So that's one of the biggest changes. And of course, things like medications, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, they were not ready available if they actually even existed. The toxicity was high. The effectiveness was probably lower than we would have wanted to see, especially in the pediatric population. The medications were never approved for pediatric patients, so that was always a problem. 
So if we did know what the issue was and we could treat it, we still didn't have as effective treatments. And now we do. We have many, many choices out there. We have lots and lots of different medications, cousins of different medicines. So if the initial medicine might have been really toxic, we like to call them cousins of the medicine. We've learned how to take out the toxicity issues, but increase the effectiveness of it. And now we also have things like Holters and 30-day event monitors, loop recorders, which now have been on the market for a while. And now we're getting things like implantable loop monitors. So patients can have things actually implanted to find out what's going on with their heart rhythms. There are wireless devices out there. There are home EKG cases, apps on your iPhone, on your Android phone. And these things can communicate with you and also communicate with your healthcare team. So I think that treating arrhythmias is exploding. And I think it's safer, it's less invasive, and it's more effective. Wow, that was a lot of things to go through really quickly. I especially appreciate what you said about the different monitors and recorders and also the apps that are available. I am astounded at the number of apps that are now available for patients. I think they help patients feel more in control, more connected, and more readily able to figure out, is this an arrhythmia issue? Am I just really nervous about this test? Am I having a fast heart rate because I have a fever? Or is my fast heart rate really, really fast? And do I need to look at this EKG and send it into my physician so that I can figure out what is going on? Right, right. You know what I also like about these apps is that it allows you very easily to record things for consecutive days and it helps you to determine if there's a pattern or not. Yeah, that's very hard when patients call in and they have a complaint or a symptom and you say, well, you know, how often does it happen? Well, you know, maybe once a day, maybe once every other day. Well, you can put a Holter monitor on for 24 hours, maybe even 48 hours. But what if those are the one or two days you don't have a symptom? What about you take it off and the third day there's a symptom and you think, oh my golly, if I could have just caught that. So I think, yeah, there's the 30-day event monitors, there's the loop recorders, but we all have our phones right by us all the Mm -hmm. time, especially our younger cohort. And having that app and having that case where you can put your thumbs on there, get your EKG, save it, send it, bring it to the office. I think that's just a phenomenal advancement. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And hopefully this is the kind of advancement that is going to garner more data, which will lead to better research and ultimately lead to better treatment. Yes. Better care for the patient is always our ultimate goal. Right. Dina, I remember about 15 years ago when some of my friends had children getting pacemakers, it was a really big deal for them. Those moms finally felt like they could maybe relax a little bit because there was a machine that was going to save their children's lives and they wouldn't die from sudden death. But I remember they were huge. They couldn't even put them where pacemakers are being put nowadays. They had to put them in the stomach because they were so big. What changes can you tell us about that you've seen regarding the development of pacemakers for the last decade or so? I think you're right. They were so huge really initially, and this is probably in the late 50s and 60s, they were so big that some of them had to be worn. So we did make some progress. We got away from wearing ones. We got into the transvenous so they can be put into the venous system. Back in, I think, maybe the mid-60s that was being done, but we still had the battery issue. In the 70s, they got the lithium battery, which lasts longer, less of a problem because mercury is a problem. But the devices still, even two decades ago, were still only most of the time for bigger kids and adults. Smaller children and certainly infants were not candidates, and that's just not acceptable. So the industry has now come up with smaller devices, smaller things that can go into children, even infants can now have pacemakers. The batteries last much, much longer there are more manufacturers out there. So there are more choices because as we all know, in congenital heart disease, one thing does not fit all. Everybody's unique. Everybody has different types of needs. So I think the size, the availability, 
and what they actually can do for the patient has all changed pretty dramatically in the past couple decades. Now I have adult heart warrior friends who have intracardiac defibrillators, or ICDs, and these devices seem newer and almost like a step up from the pacemakers. Can you tell us more about these devices and the changes you've seen in them over the years? Well, so intracardiac defibrillators are, I like to think of them as an AED or the automatic external defibrillators, but from the inside. These are much, much newer into the 80s before these became more readily available. And at that time, they were done by a thoracotomy. So there had to be a surgical procedure, an incision, and they were only able to put patches on the outside of the heart or the heart sac. Now we have, again, you can go to the cath lab. You can be in there for a short period of time. They can do them intravenously, and then the coils get screwed right into the inside of the heart wall for most of our patients. They're, again, much smaller. They address different issues. So the defibrillator is there for ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, which are very fatal arrhythmias, whereas a pacemaker typically is put in for a low heart rate or no heart rate that is initiated by the heart on a normal basis. So the ICDs are for our very fast ventricular rhythms and pacemakers are for slow or low heart rates as a whole. There's new things on the horizon for ICDs. You know, those change every year. They're getting smaller. The batteries are getting better. They last longer. They're put in in cath procedures versus surgical suites. And they are now looking at doing leadless defibrillators. There's just so much on the horizon. I have to say, even as a nurse, it's a hard time wrapping my head around all of the technology that's up and coming and what it can mean for our congenital heart patients. It is fascinating. There's just no doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it seems like the fewer moving parts or the fewer parts that have to be put in anywhere, the less chances there are for something to go wrong with those parts. Yes. And so it's just amazing to me. All the Bluetooth technology too that's going on, that's just phenomenal to me. It is. I have to agree. And nobody ever wants to have congenital heart disease. We want to eradicate this completely off of the face of the earth. But it's good that technology is moving forward and keeping pace with what is happening with our patients. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing this information with us. Now we need to take a quick commercial break, but don't leave yet, listeners, because coming up next, we're going to talk to Dina about changes from open heart surgeries to interventional cardiology when we come back after this brief break. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. To our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is A Nurse's Perspective Changes in Care Over the Last 30 Years, Part 1. Our guest is Akron Children's Hospital Nurse Program Coordinator for the Adult Congenital Heart Service, Dina Barber. Dina, there's this whole new field called interventional cardiology, which is where doctors are doing minimally invasive procedures in the cath lab instead of having to do an open heart procedure. One of the ones that stands out in my mind is the closing of ASDs and VSDs or holes in the heart. So can you talk to us about this topic? 
Sure. ASDs are atrial septal defects and VSDs or ventricular septal defects are holes in the heart between the upper two chambers or the lower two chambers. And initially this was one of the easier surgeries to do. It did require a sternotomy so the patient had to go under anesthesia and have their chest cut open and their ribs cracked and all of the things that we all hate to think about having done to our loved ones. But that was the only way to close these holes and then they would sew them up and then put the patient back together. And as time went on it became a very easy surgery. It's a quick surgery according to the surgeons, and it carries a low mortality, but anything carries some mortality. So people began looking at, can we close these in the cath lab? And now we do this almost routinely in the cath lab. If the hole between the two upper chambers, the atrium, is too big or it's not quite in the right place and it's going to cause some pinching of some of the really important parts of the heart, they still will have open heart surgery, but hopefully the majority can be done in the cath lab. There's lots and lots of different medical terms. We started with an umbrella device and then we used something called a clamshell and we went on to a cardio seal and a Starflex. Of course, every company has their own name. We're mostly, at least in Akron, we use the Amplatzer device or the Helix device. And this is just it's like Charmin for toilet paper. It's just kind of the brand name. And what the patient does is they go to the cath lab. So instead of going to surgery, they go to the cath lab. They are sedated if they're an adult or put under general anesthesia if they're a child. They go in through the groin and then they thread the catheter up into the heart. They deploy the device on one side of the hole and then they make sure it's where it should be. And then they deploy the second half on the other side of the hole. And in effect, it sandwiches it and it stops that hole from being a problem for the patient. The ventricular septal defects are being closed in the same way. They're a little tougher because they're in the big pumping chambers of the heart. So they're between those two big pumping chambers, which generate quite a bit of force. So it has to be in the right place. It has to be the right size. And this is not as advanced as atrial septal defects, but I'm sure as time goes on, we'll figure out easier and easier ways to do this. What I love about this is the patient is generally in the hospital overnight. It's typically done and coded as an outpatient procedure, and insurance companies love that. There's less pain, there's less recovery, and it's much cheaper for the patient in the long run. So all in all, I think it's been a great advancement. Again, I want to caution, not every ASD or VSD can be done in the cath lab, but by golly, if it's possible, we will give it a shot. Well, I love that because we all want our children and our adults who have congenital heart defects to recover faster and with fewer complications. And it's just like we were talking about before. The less cutting that is done, the less manipulation that is done of the sternum, the less chances for infection. And so that means, hopefully, a quicker recovery. And also, like you were saying, a lot less pain. It's really exciting to me to hear about doctors being able to replace valves in the cath lab. Of course, the one that comes to my mind is the Melody valve. Can you tell us more about the interventional cardiology procedure used to replace valves? I can. I can speak to that a little bit. And I think the Melody valve is probably one of the most exciting things that's come along in a long time, at least in my career. When I first started this about, well, I guess going on 15 years ago, it was, oh, just wait, just wait. The Melody valve's coming. And, you know, it has to go through all of the testing. And, and Europe is usually a little further ahead of us. And then it has to be FDA approved. And then people have to be proctored on how they do it. And it became very, very exciting because we were able to hold off on valves for some patients. Of course, we would never, ever endanger anybody, but if they weren't in dire need of a valve replacement, we would hold off. So again, the patient does not have to have an incision. There's no open heart surgery involved. They go to the cath lab, sedated or put under anesthesia, depending on the patient's age and whether or not they can tolerate being just lightly sedated. It's a groin stick and the catheter goes up into the heart and they actually have the valve itself 
implanted on the catheter, which I can't even begin to tell you how fascinating that is to me because we're not talking a very small thing. A pulmonary valve is a decent sized item. Again, the technology is fascinating. The patient has the valve, it's deployed, they check everything that they need, the pressures, is it seated correctly, is it where it should be, is it performing as it should, take the catheters out, the patient goes to the floor, and then the next day they typically get to go home. So we are right back to what we were talking about earlier, less pain, less invasiveness, less chance of infection, as you said, cheaper, and no open heart surgery. It's a wonderful thing. There are other valves that are being used. The aortic valve in adults is done quite a bit. It's called TAVR, transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. We haven't quite gotten that far in congenital heart disease. A lot of that has to do with the atrial valve is often not a normal valve. So we are seeing that in adult congenital, but not as much as we are the pulmonary valve. The aortic valve is not being replaced in people who might have a malformed valve since birth, but if they develop problems in their aortic valve later and they're an adult, then because of the size of the valve, that then they can do it in the cath lab? Well, they're usually older adults. And when I say older, this is being done in patients that are in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Sometimes they're not surgical candidates. Sometimes they're not good candidates for anesthesia and for the incision, but they are good candidates otherwise to have the valve replaced. It's just a different procedure. Again, when you're talking congenital versus acquired heart disease, you don't have an isolated valvular issue in congenital heart disease. That's very rare. You have everything that's associated with that. Whereas an adult acquired heart disease, it's an older adult calcified valve. Everything else is as was originally intended to be, four chambers, everything's in the right place put together. So they are much better candidates than our congenital heart population who has a bicuspid aortic valve and maybe a bigger aorta because of the bicuspid aortic valve. And oh, by the way, they also have a big left ventricle because of something else. So it's never easy for our congenital heart patients, is it? It just never is very easy for them. It never, ever is. No. <laughs> no. I'm listening to you explain it. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I know yeah. people with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> It's, yeah, not. it's not simple for our congenital heart patients, but it's encouraging to know that if somebody has a calcified valve, they'll be perfecting it for that population. And before you know it, I know. Dina, we'll be able to apply that to yeah. our CHD patients, don't you think? I hope so. I mean, that's I think that's what we're, we're all hopeful for, that acquired heart disease, there are millions of people with acquired heart disease across the world. And of course, the business and the technology is going to go where the market is first, but that eventually will filter down to the congenital heart world. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, so the last question for this segment is pretty tough. I have friends whose children develop collaterals and they have to have them coiled off. And for those listeners who may not know what this is, when you have children whose hearts are funky, like many of our kids are, then the body wants to have enough oxygen going throughout it. And so if they can't get enough oxygen through their major vessels, then the human body will just create their own vessels to carry more oxygen to the body. And sometimes that's good, but a lot of times it's not. And they actually need to have them coiled off. So that was usually done in a cath lab in the past. Is it still a common cath procedure? And what other procedures are routinely done in a cath lab that might have had to be corrected in an open heart setting before? We still definitely do a lot of coils. There is a PDA coil that's done, patent ductus arteriosus, which every baby, every human being has in utero. And sometimes those don't close off. And that can be a big problem because, again, it's a way for blood flow 
to get where it needs to be in utero, but as the patient comes out, they don't need that anymore. So we still coil those quite frequently. We still coil collaterals, and I think you did a good job of explaining what that means. At some point, the body says, hey, this is not working for me, and I'm going to come up with a better pathway. The blood's not going where I want it to go, so I'm going to make a better pathway. And that's great for when the patient needs it. But once they have a repair or some sort of a procedure, it then can become much, much more blood flow than the body now needs. And we can go in and we plug up these holes with these little coils. And if you've ever had a chance to take a look at one, they actually are little coils that are metal with fibers on them and they are coiled around. They get straightened out in the catheter. They put them through the groin. Once they deploy them, they do coil up and they plug up the hole and that's done and taken care of. As far as what other procedures are routinely done in the cath lab, we do a lot of diagnostic caths, which is probably not unusual for a lot of people to hear that, but we do a lot. I feel like we do a lot more diagnostic casts than we used to because we're doing a lot more procedures. And the way to really tell what the pressure is in the heart and how everything is put together is to get in there with a catheter and take a look at that. So we still are doing quite a bit of diagnostic casts, especially if a big open heart surgery is planned. As far as what has been done in the cath lab that used to be done, In the OR, I think the biggest thing is the hybrid procedures for our single ventricle population. It's still open heart, but it's called a hybrid procedure because the cath lab interventional cardiologist as well as the surgeons are involved, and it's called a hybrid approach because there's a little of this and a little of that, and I think that's one of the biggest changes also. I love that. I love you explaining what the hybrid procedure means because it's something that parents have probably heard and some survivors may have heard and may not really have understood. And I think it's fascinating how I bet some of those operating theaters get pretty crowded because you have a lot of nurses, you have a lot of different people in there, and then put in a surgeon and a cardiologist doing interventional cardiology through a cath while other things are going on. I just, I don't know how everybody keeps it all straight. I think it's amazing. I I don't either. I mean, I talk to the surgeons, I talk to the interventional cardiologists, and it is fascinating. Yeah. Well, thanks for discussing all this with me. And we need to take another quick break, but don't leave yet, listeners, because coming up next, we're going to talk to Dina about how interventional cardiology has affected some families' quality of life. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. The most common theme that I hear is why. She always needed uh, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is A Nurse's Perspective, Changes in Care Over the Last 30 Years, Part 1. You have to tune in next week for Part 2. And we have a wonderful guest. We have the Akron Children's Hospital Nurse Program Coordinator for the Adult Congenital Heart Service, Dina Barber. So we've been talking to Dina about all kinds of changes that she has seen. But now I want to talk about how interventional cardiology might actually affect families' quality 
quality of life. So Dina, over 20 years ago when my son was born, I read everything I could to help me understand what he was going to have to go through. And I remember at that time that there were a lot of questions regarding how much pain babies felt and the need for pain management in infants. Can you tell us about what we now know about pain management for infants and children and how pain management for patients having a cath procedure differs from those having open heart surgery? Yeah, that's a big topic. A little bit of a disclaimer, I haven't taken care of infants and children for about a decade and a half, but I still work really closely with my pediatric nursing colleagues. And I think one of the biggest issues is if you're not cracking open the chest, your pain level is going to naturally be less. And there's just no other way to cut it. If you're not having your chest opened up, there's not an incision, you are definitely going to have less pain, whether you're an infant, a child, or an adult. So right off the bat, Yes, a cath procedure differs in the fact that the types of pain medicine are going to be much less potent for a cardiac cath procedure in most cases and probably are not going to be required as long. And I think aside from the medicines and the procedures themselves, I think even 20 years ago, we weren't as good as we are now about involving patients and families and moms and dads in particular with their children. And now we know having that patient with their mom and dad in the recovery room, in the intensive care unit, pre-surgery, that itself decreases anxiety and in some ways the pain that the patient, especially a baby, is going to be having. So I think having a cath procedure is helpful. Learning that family-centered care and that the parents are the most important part in this child's life, all of those things together help decrease anxiety, stress, and in the long run help with pain management. That was such a good answer. Thank you for explaining that. And I love what you said about how having the family-centered care can reduce the pain. To me, that's a huge quality of life issue. It is. We used to separate people. Even 15, 20 years ago, we separated people. Oh, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, you shouldn't be here. Oh, you go out into the back. Oh, don't worry. You know, and it's like now, now we, you know, we, we've really want, gone full circle especially since I started 35 years ago. I mean, we really have gone full circle. We're not the experts on the child. The family's the expert. We are not the experts on the the patient. The family is. We might have the medical expertise, but they have the patient expertise. So I think that's important. I think that's important too. And I think that people, no matter what age, feel more comforted when there's somebody loving that's near them. And this is one of the ways, Dina, that you're very special. And all of the nurses who work with our patients are very special because you become part of our family, especially the nurses who see our children time after time. I got really lucky with Alex, even though he had 16 years between his second and his third surgery. He had this same anesthesiologist. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. He had the same surgeon, the same anesthesiologist. He had a number of nurses who were the same. And he may not have remembered them consciously, but I think unconsciously he did. And another cool thing is some of the doctors who took care of him 16 years later, they were in a higher position in the hospital. But when they heard that Alex was there, they came and checked on him. Oh, absolutely. We do that all the time. I mean, we just can't help ourselves. We want to know how people are. We want to assure they're getting good care. You know, we want to make sure everything's going well. We just can't help it. We're so attached to our patients. Right. In a good way. Right. In a good way. And, And I think that's comforting to the families. And I think that raises our quality of care to a new level. And that's where I think as difficult as it is to have a child with a congenital heart defect, what I love about this community is just that we form a community and we form almost like a family connection with those of you Mm -hmm. who care for our kids. So thank thank you for being there for our kids. It's mutual. 
it is mutual. Thank you for sharing your kids and your adults and your husbands and wives with us. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. So when Alex had his first open heart surgery, he was discharged after a week, but he probably could have been discharged after five days, except for the surgeon refused to send him home over the weekend because he was afraid that if he had to be readmitted, that the staff that works on the weekend isn't the same as the staff that works during the week. And so it seems now, though, that five days seems like a long time for somebody to be in the hospital, and there seems to be shorter and shorter recovery times in the hospital. So can you talk about the length of stay that patients are having now, especially that they're having interventional cardiology procedures instead of open-heart procedures? As we've talked about, definitely interventional cardiology procedures typically are much shorter. It's not uncommon for a patient to be in the hospital setting for less than 24 hours. They come in, they're evaluated, they go to the pre-surgery, they have their procedure, they go to the floor, they spend the night, the next morning they get an EKG and echo and they're gone. They're gone by lunchtime. So everything that's associated with being in a hospital, getting an infection, picking up something that nobody wants to have, even something as simple as the flu is there's just a lot of it in the hospital. We all know that. So the stays for interventional cardiology make sense, but the stays for open heart procedures are also decreasing. It's not uncommon for ASDs, even though we talked about closing those in the cath lab, there are still patients, as I had said, that need surgery. It's not uncommon for them to go home in two days. We've learned how to do the operation better, the anesthesia is better, the post-op care is better, the pain management's better, and we encourage patients to get up and move. Get up and go to the playroom if you want to. Get up and watch TV in the chair. Some patients are not as compliant as others, especially as you become an adult, but the adult will be up and out of that bed the next day. Got to get up. We don't want you infected. So the stays become much, much shorter, and everything bad that goes along with a hospital stay is decreased. I love that. That is so good, and I know Alex had to get up and move around, like what you're saying, after just within, I think, within a day of him mm -hmm. having his last open mm -hmm. heart surgery. And yep. he was like, I just had my chest cracked open. And the nurses were like, yeah, yes, we don't did. want you to get <laughs> infected. So yeah, you yes, got to move. Did. And Time you, to get up. And you have to cough. And, you know, he would hold that pillow to his chest and it hurts so bad. But they would Aww. make him cough and breathe. And yeah, I think that we do know so much more now than what we used to. Don't you think that's part of it, Dina? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Even just from when I started as a nurse, we, I mean, people have their tonsils out for the love of Pete. We're in the hospital for like five days. Right. And now they go home in two or three hours. They had their tonsils out two or three hours later. Goodbye. You're going home. Right. So even something like a tonsillectomy now is a couple hour procedure, let alone these cath procedures. Some cath patients go home the same day. I didn't really want to get into that because that's adult and it's just certain procedures. So, right. but yeah, 20 hours later, they're gone. Goodbye. Wow. See ya. Which is wonderful. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Because like you said, there are some bugs that are specific to breeding in hospitals and you get exposed to things in a hospital that you're not exposed to when you're in your own home. So it does yes. make a big difference. Plus, I think we heal better when we're sleeping in our own bed. Don't you, Dina? Oh, yes, yes. As soon as patients get home, it's like the healing process just accelerates. It right. really does. Right. So, Dina, most people don't like to talk about the money involved with taking care of people with congenital heart defects, but people have called me over the years trying to decide whether or not they should abort their baby because they weren't sure if they could afford all of the expenses involved with having a child with a complex CHD. So mm. can you talk to us? I know. Can you talk to us about the difference in cost between open heart procedures and interventional cardiology? 
I can talk a little bit in generalities. I don't have figures. Those are going to vary from region to region, from hospital to hospital, insurance company to insurance company. But a couple of key points is insurance companies really, really like outpatient procedures. So even though a patient stays overnight for an interventional cardiology procedure, it's typically outpatient. That, for some reason, is paid for better, and it's just it's liked better by the insurance company. The other thing is if you're not staying, you're not paying a room and board, you're not paying the physician to come in and make rounds, you're not paying for the nursing care because you're home by then. I do know that some interventional procedures can be more costly than some open-heart surgeries. And again, I can't talk specifics because I don't have those figures, but some of it depends on what devices are being used, what types of procedure is being done. So I would say as a whole, something that's outpatient, that somebody goes home within a day is going to, in the long run, be more cost effective and better for the patient than staying any length of time in the hospital. All of that makes perfect sense, but we know that not everything makes sense in the hospital, right, Dina? <laughs> that is very true. That is a very true statement. <laughs> but it does help to hear from you some of the things, that, and this does make a lot of sense. You're not paying for the room for that much longer. You're not paying for the doctors to go do rounds. You're not paying for having to eat the hospital food or take the medicines there. And now a lot of hospitals won't even let you bring in your own medication. They insist that you have medications provided at that hospital. Yes, and that can be a very costly thing. I like to think that hospitals are not in the business of just there to make money, but they do have to keep their doors open. Right. And then there's also challenges. Is it the right medicine? Are we giving the patient really what they say that we're giving them? So yeah. that's kind of a hot topic in some hospital settings. Well, we covered a lot of ground, but we're not done, friends. You're going to have to come back next week to hear what Dina has to say for part two because we're going to actually discover some of the changes that are made that are specific to certain congenital heart defects. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dina. Oh, thank you. I really enjoy talking about it, and I hope our patients find it helpful. And as always, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Like I said, come back next week to hear Dina, and we'll be discussing specific congenital heart defects, especially tetralogy of fallot transposition of the great vessels and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. But you can join us now in our new talk back session immediately following our program. It's on Pal Talk. So just look for Hug Podcast chat room. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, check out the blog on www.hearttoheartwithanna.com and I'll have an explanation on the blog. Until then, remember my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week.